Federal employees now have new information from the Office of Personnel Management to help them figure out what the so-called future of work will look like. New guidance says agencies should continue using telework and remote work where possible and to take workplace flexibility lessons learned from the pandemic and turn them into long-term changes. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more. And Drew, how and why did OPM create this guidance and why now? So, Tom, this is really writing down what OPM has been saying for a long time, that it's important for agencies to take lessons learned from the pandemic and turn them into something that's going to be more part of their long-term strategic workforce planning. It also builds off of OPM's guidance on telework from 2021, which encouraged agencies to use more telework. This is now outlining how agencies should move forward to what we're calling the future of work. So how agencies can take telework and remote work opportunities and turn them into something that is going to be more permanent and expanded for agencies. There's five priority areas for this so-called future of work strategy. What are they and what's OPM looking at here? The priority areas look at things like policy and resources, research and evaluation, and data analytics, and a couple other ones as well. For data analytics, for example, OPM is working on creating different public-facing dashboards. These are going to take information for example, from the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, or FEVS, and and make it into a, a dashboard that agencies can look at and filter down on different types of questions from FEVS to see information highlighted in a, in a clearer way that they can uh, make and they can build decisions based off of those. The, uh, another dashboard that they're working on is for hiring manager satisfaction, which has been a challenge just with uh, hiring managers struggling to recruit quality candidates. So that's one area OPM is looking at. In another area of this new guidance, OPM says it's going to be offering a free training session for managers and supervisors to help them with managing hybrid workforce. That's uh, been a challenge for some agencies trying to figure out how to deal with both in-person and virtual employees at the same time. So OPM says they're going to offer this one free training and have others down the road as well for just general human capital management strategies. It sounds like they're going to offer kind of a data-based way so people can compare themselves to what other agencies are doing or some maybe established metrics government-wide that people can compare themselves to. Exactly. They're going to be taking this kind of approach where they're focusing a lot more on data and using hard evidence as where wherever possible to help agencies make more informed decisions. Now, on this whole area of hybrid work, OPM says it's already done a lot of work there. Where does that all stand, hybrid? I mean, hybrid is here by default, it seems, but without any real strong guidance on why or how much. So it really does depend on the agency and whether positions or different occupations are eligible for telework and remote work and that how that mixes in with in-person work as well. So OPM kind of issues these overarching policies and then agencies do with it what they will. The OPM's 2021 telework guidance, for example, encouraged more use of telework. And that's something that since then OPM has continued to emphasize that these 
types of practices are going to be really important for competing with the private sector, especially as a lot of employees and job seekers are turning more towards job opportunities that offer telework and remote work. One other area where OPM is making or has already made a change was adding a remote job filter on USA Jobs that makes it easier for job candidates to find those opportunities uh, where where they do exist in the federal workforce. Do you get the sense that maybe agencies are looking for more definitive guidance on from OPM on telework and hybrid, and OPM is telling agencies, no, you make the decision, but we'll offer general guidelines and dashboards to help you compare yourself to other agencies? Exactly. They're, I don't think we're going to expect from OPM to have a very clear or hard line directive to agencies. I think what we're going to see instead is this general, more general sense of how OPM is going to help agencies depending on the individual mission, the individual positions, which again can vary in terms of whether or not they're eligible for telework. Now, you mentioned a lot of dashboards that will be launched by OPM. You can compare different metrics, and they're also changing data reporting requirements on remote work. It sounds like to have all these dashboards, you have to have the data to populate them, and therefore this is going to come back to agencies for somebody at the agency, I guess HR maybe, to to report. So what's going on with that whole regime? Agencies are going to see new requirements very soon from OPM on looking at whether each individual employee is working either remotely, working on a telework basis, or just working fully in person, whatever their work arrangement is, OPM is requiring agencies to report more information. For example, hours of remote work per pay period and how many employees are on each type of work arrangement. That data will feed into OPM's system called the Enterprise Human Resources Integration or EHRI system, and agencies can then use that data or see it in a clearer way to filter down based on things like occupation or other different categories and compare, you know, okay, how many employees are teleworking in this position versus another one. And that will help them, OPM says, to just make more long-term decisions. Right. So they expect agencies to use this remote telework and hybrid work data because some members of Congress, some of the Republicans that want that return to the pre-pandemic levels of telework are saying they want evidence that it does help productivity, et cetera, et cetera. And so somewhere objective metrics have to be established here in the data to support them. That's right. And it is something that the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, when they had a hearing with OPM Director Kierna Huja just recently, they were raising concerns. Some of the mem- Republican members were raising concerns that OPM didn't have clear information or clear data on how many employees exactly are teleworking versus remote working. So this may give a clearer picture down the line for how that actually looks for the federal workforce. And there is not yet a solid deadline for when agencies are going to have to start reporting this data, but it is coming soon. Right. And of course, the other issue that this all depends or depends on all of this is how much office space they're going to have. And I don't think anyone's ready quite yet to pull the trigger on. Well, I guess some agencies have, but in a widespread way, people are reluctant to give up that space because 
once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, to see that that's something that, for example, Mayor Mir- Muriel Bowser in D.C., she's said this, you know, essentially agencies should return their employees to the office or give up that space. But we have yet to see, as you said, that actually come to fruition. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, 
How has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? 
He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the way I that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.